We chose that song because it's about a man who had an encounter with Jesus. His name is Steph McLeod, as I think Ryan mentioned. It's a picture of him. That's him. He's Scottish. He's got a great accent. He was a little boy. He was growing up and having a fine life. His his mother and father provided for all of his needs emotionally, physically. He had everything he needed until they started to drift apart and his mother had a nervous breakdown and left them. As that young boy grew to be a man, his anger grew alongside his bitterness, his confusion, the stability of his life disintegrating beneath his feet, and he turned to alcohol and drugs to soothe his pain. And in time, as his anger grew and his world continued to turn more and more upside down and become deeply entrenched, he found himself on the street in Edinburgh, begging not for just a little bit to get him back on his feet, but begging for just a little bit to get him a little bit more of his drug. And he was literally near death when he found himself in a rehab center called the Bethany Christian Center, by the way, not making that up. Bethany Christian School over here, this is in Scotland. Rehabilitation center, and he spent time in that center doing what addicts do, admitting first that his life had become unmanageable, that he was powerless against his addiction. But that somebody introduced him to step two there is a higher power, one who can restore you to sanity, and he will tell you that story that in that hour. He didn't just learn steps to get back on his feet or to live a healthy life again. He had an encounter with a person, Jesus. And he wrote that song after he picked up the guitar in the rehab center and learned how to express himself through music. When he found Jesus, he was holding on to him. He'd broken his chains and he'd set him free. When he found Jesus, he was standing over him, not with a wagging finger, but lifting his burden and giving him rest. When he found Jesus, he was walking next to him. And that meant that he saw his tears and he heard his cries and he met him in the wilderness of his loneliness and of his man-made destiny and delivered him from the empty promises of this world. When he found Jesus, his own heart was heavy. And that's what an addict calls rock bottom. Steph didn't know what to do or say, but Jesus met him right there where he was with his love and his blood, and he paid for his sins, and he took Steph's upside down life over time and turned it right side up. We're starting a new series today. We begin a new series called The Upside Down Kingdom. You see it illustrated here and here's what I want you to burn into your brain. And by the way, uh, don't miss the beginning of the movie every week. We tell a story every week in this service. It actually begins on Monday morning when you get into your personal worship and you begin to work with the scriptures and with the Lord 
to dig into this story that we're gonna be talking about on Sunday. You talk with your friends in the church and your community about it and we all come together to galvanize that. But at the beginning of this story today, if you were here at the countdown, you would see uh, a story that our graphic designer Nicole made of a city right side up and something upside down traversing along and people walking through it out into a countryside upside down and then meeting Jesus. And so my challenge to you as we go into this series is to remember this. Um, it's easy to take uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're gonna be studying, this, this most iconic sermon probably ever recorded. It's easy to take this sermon and see as an extension of our, of our last series, which was a study of the Proverbs, the wisdom of God compared and contrasted with the wisdom of man to see if it stands the test of time, if it stands up to scrutiny today. It's easy to see this Sermon on the Mount that we're gonna be studying, these words of Jesus, as just an extension of those Old Testament Proverbs comparing and contrasting uh, that wisdom. Um, it's easy it's easy to sort of think it's just about rich insights uh, into wise living, but really it's about more than that. It's about an encounter with Jesus. It's about, it's about asking yourself if you're willing to admit that that world you live in that feels so right side up is probably, at least in part, if not entirely upside down, and that that world that seems so disorienting to you is the way things ought to be. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to set out to encounter Jesus uh, as we enter into the story. So you hear this and you think, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Oh, this is great. This is nice. But I'm going to take a nap during that part because I grew up in the church. I'm good. I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was a little boy. And, or a little girl, and I've grown up in the church and I get it and I know the Beatitudes and I know the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. They mean supreme blessing. It says, blessed are those, richly blessed are those. I know all those. I've grown up with them. I've memorized some of them. Here's the problem. This is what was so disorienting for me as I prepared for this message. So I have some go-to theologians and preachers that I listen to, um, Charles Spurgeon, there are a lot of messages of his uh, that he preached, a pr prolific and brilliant preacher. Um, another one, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, these are some of the guys, and there are others as well. And here's what I noticed as weeks and weeks ago, I and the other pastors began to, began to dig into the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Every single one of these guys started their teaching on the Sermon on the Mount with a lament over the superficiality of their church. Over, over a lament of their religiosity that did not translate into the kingdom living that would be described in this scripture, every one of them. So it is with humility and great sobriety that I come before you admitting that before Jesus preached this sermon, he lambasted the Matts and the Toms and the Sams and the Ryans, the preachers of the world, the, real, the institutional religionists of the world. He took us to task because they had become lost in their religiosity and in their hierarchy and in their keeping up of appearances and in their material beliefs about a kingdom uh, being material in the world in which they would overthrow Rome and they would all take their seats of power and authority and wealth. He took them to task and he took the people in those synagogues and those churches, if you will, to task. That means that Jesus takes you and me to task when we enter into the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't come to us as a sweet little Jewish carpenter giving us good, nice memes on the countryside amidst the daffodils. He comes to us 
as a radical revolutionary. And his revolution isn't about governments and, and earthly kingdoms, which are nothing to him, dust in the wind to him. He comes to spark a revolution in your own heart. And he comes to throw things on their heads to take that kingdom that we think is right side up and turn it upside down. He's a provocateur. He comes and he says, what is blessed in your world is not blessed and what is not blessed in your world is richly blessed. That's the Sermon on the Mount. But before he could come to this mountain, another mountain entered into the, the, the story of history. Uh, but maybe it sounds familiar. Let me tell you how Jesus came to his mountain. Uh, at birth... A tyrant king wanted him dead as a baby, and he had to flee with his parents. He was not an Egyptian, but was protected and raised by Egyptians, protected by Egyptians at the beginning of his life. Um, He had the right to kingship over his people, but his people were being oppressed by a foreign government. He came out of Egypt, passed through water at baptism, and then he entered into a wilderness, and he was tempted by the evil one for a period of 40 days. And he ended up at this mountain. Is that familiar to you? Whose story does that sound like? Moses. It's the same story as we see in Moses and in the Exodus. Moses and the people of God. Moses, the one who is a type of Christ, though lesser, though insufficient. Moses, a human being that God anoints to lead his people out of slavery. He begins as a baby who a king wants dead. He's harbored by the Egyptians, protected by them. He's raised in their kingdom, though, uh, though uh, his people are being oppressed. He becomes the leader of his people. They, uh, they, they flee Egypt. They're set free from Egypt. They head out into the wilderness to be tempted For 40 years, for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness, their faith tested before the Lord, and they end up at a mountain. But that mountain looked like this. That's a real mountain that's in Japan. I didn't have a picture of ancient Sinai when God was on it. But I think it looks something like this if you read the Bible's descriptions full of smoke and lightning and thunder and fire. And they were supposed to go up to that mountain and get the law of God. And they did what you and I would do. (laughs) I'm not going up there. Moses, you go up there, but we're not going up there. And God said, you know what? They're right, Moses. Don't let them even touch this mountain because they even touch it, they die. Moses, you have to consecrate yourself, prepare yourself to come and see me. And Moses had to traverse up into that smoke to meet God face to face and to receive his law. And it was terrifying. And you know what? We think it was terrifying because of the smoke and the lightning and the lava and everything else. That's not what was terrifying. We think maybe it's terrifying because God's law was there. And it's so insurmountable for us. And that's true. But it wasn't terrifying because of that. It was terrifying because God was on it. God was there. And we are not God. And God is holy. And I am not holy. And God is pure and beautiful. And God knows how to love perfectly. And I do not. And the distance between me as I am, if I'm honest, if I put on that addict's step one honesty, the distance between me and the perfections of my maker is that mountain. 
So Jesus walked up to his mountain in a very similar way. And it looked more like this. That's literally around where they think it was. He walked up to that mountain. He left the city. Think about that. He, 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 he went around the cities and the urban areas and he taught in the synagogues and he gained notoriety and credibility for being brilliant as a teacher of God's word and, and, a, and, a, and a pronouncer of wisdom, being, being wiser than all the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders. He gained notoriety because of his love and compassion for, he, for people and the way that he would use his supernatural gifts to heal them, proving that he had the ability uh, to, to control disease and illness, uh, proving that he had power over nature, and proving that he even had power over death. He went around the cities performing miracles as evidence that he was God and he had power. And another little scary moment, these religious leaders see all that and it ought to be obvious to them, but they haven't hit their rock bottom yet. They haven't gotten honest with God. They're still holding on to their appearances and to their status and they say, we gotta get rid of this guy. Some of them go out into the countryside honestly to learn from him. Others go out in the countryside to get, to get dirt on him so that they can, they can trick him and they can get him with the law and they can kill him. Jesus has to leave this city. He has to leave the upside down kingdom to go out on this hillside with throngs of people who enter the hill. Hear this, they enter the hill and they sit at his feet Because he's better than Moses. You see, he went into the wilderness for those 40 days and was tested just like Moses. He was, he was tested with status and power. He was tested to become, to succumb to his appetites instead of trusting in the Lord and being renewed by the Lord. He was tested um, in that he was challenged to test the Lord and to doubt the Lord's plans. And he endured the test in the wilderness in prayer and fasting. And he would pay the price on the cross for our sins. He would, he would pay for the judgment that brought fire down on that mountain. So that why? So that you and I could walk up on a gentle pasture and sit at his feet and encounter the God who loves you face to face. This is how Jesus got to that mountain and this was the encounter. So let me just... Say this to you, uh, Jesus is here to get in your face with this sermon for the next several weeks. He's here to encounter you and he's only scary if you're not willing to let go of that pride. If you're willing to let go, he wants to talk to you, every one of you, especially those of you who grew up in a church. And he wants to talk to me too. And here's the deal, it's a cute bumper sticker, but God is not your co-pilot. And it's a sweet song and I understand uh, the pathos of it, but Jesus doesn't periodically take the wheel when you're feeling overwhelmed. He is the wheel. He is the car. He is the road. He is everything. And when I get overwhelmed, it may be because of external forces in an upside down world leaning into me and persecuting me, or it may be because I'm still living in the upside down world and suffering the consequences of that. Either way, Jesus is my only hope.
So we enter into the Beatitudes. We enter into the Sermon on the Mount. And I will tell you, you're going to have to become a student of the Sermon on the Mount far above a message on Sunday morning or a worship service or even your personal worship. This is three chapters of the most rich and beautiful uh, scripture in all of the Bible. And you need to become a student of this word. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, 30 hours of commentary on just these three chapters. So we're going to very briefly, from a very high altitude, we're going to look at these Beatitudes as Jesus lays out something for us that should do two things. Number one, it should reveal to you that you were made for the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus announced before he came up here. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. It is fulfilled in my presence. I am the kingdom of heaven. You religious rulers, you have it wrong. It's not a material kingdom in this life. That kingdom is yet to come. I am the kingdom of heaven and I dwell richly in your hearts and spirit and in truth. And this is what a kingdom citizen looks like. That's the first thing it should do is reveal what life is like in the kingdom of heaven and the character of that citizen. But it should also be bone crushing to you as you go through this Sermon on the Mount and remind you the only way through to this citizenship is through Jesus. It's through that Steph McLeod encounter with him. And you will never climb this mountain alone. If you try that, you're climbing the smoke and fire. You'll never make it. You do not follow the Sermon on the Mount to become a Christian. You follow the Sermon on the Mount because you have become a Christian. Because you have encountered Jesus. So, the Beatitudes, he begins with this one. This will be familiar to an addict, by the way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the ones who have admitted to themselves and to others that they're not God, that they need God, that they need to open themselves up to Jesus, that they need to, that they need to let him pull them out of that upside down kingdom, turn their world right side up. You can't get anywhere else in the Sermon on the Mount or in your encounter with Jesus if you do not begin with the poor in spirit. And he says what? He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the entry into the kingdom of heaven. It's what we call repentance. It's when I find Jesus and I open my eyes and realize that it was him who found me and who had been pursuing me for my whole life and who knew me before that. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is an acknowledgement that we're living in this new kingdom, but it is a now and not yet. We're living in that kingdom now in spirit and in truth, knowing that victory is secured and that Christ is going to consummate his kingdom one day. But right now, we're still having to walk through and dwell in and be a part of this upside-down, broken kingdom. And he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Know now that whether you suffer because of the demons within you or the demons without pressing against you, your mourning will be turned to laughing. And so you are blessed now in that hope. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's not modern wisdom, is it? You know, when sports season starts, you can see this in full force, and I certainly don't mean to pin this only on athletes. It's true of me, it's true of us. But uh, in culture, we would never say the meek inherit the earth. We would say the proud, the strong, the confident inherit the earth. We would celebrate the people who want to make sure you know how great they are. 
He says, no, 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 the meek inherit the earth. And that's not a kind of meekness that you find on a personality test. That's not a kind of meekness that some people have and some people don't. All of these beatitudes, all of these characteristics of kingdom life are the responsibility and the privilege of every Christian. He says, this is a kind of meekness that is fierce and courageous. It's a meekness that knows itself. It's a meekness that is disciplined in deploying its resources, not for its own purposes, but for kingdom good. It's a meekness that knows its first order is to love. And so what's the next beatitude? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. If you, and it, implication. Hunger and thirst for anything else. And it will leave you wanting. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And there you'll find real satisfaction because that's what Jesus hungers for. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that actually, in one sense, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are just uh, an elaboration on the great command to love God and love your neighbor. What does righteousness mean in Scripture? You hear that word righteous and you just think, well, it means it's a big list of things you don't do. That's not it. There are certainly things you shouldn't do. And that's more about holiness, set-apartness, Righteousness in scriptures and the Hebrew understanding is a person, a righteous person is a person who will disadvantage him or herself for the benefit of others. He or she will not have a politics of self. He or she is generous and missional and strives in life to need less so that they can give more. He says, hunger and thirst for that kind of righteousness and you will be satisfied. And so then he adds the next one. He takes the next step on the ladder. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive merciful. The, mer- the mercy, the, the merciful are the ones who have experienced that first step. And he said, I, or second step, they know They know that they needed God's forgiveness, that they received mercy so they can give it even to those who squander it or throw it in their faces. They know that they can be a merciful person because in the end of the day, they have received mercy and it is God's mercy who brings them home. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Pure in heart, what does that mean? Let me tell you what what I think it means. This command that Jesus gave that's very upside down to us, you've heard it said you should love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The person who is pure of heart cannot help but see in people the image of God that was meant to be, cannot hold a grudge, cannot feel self-righteous and entitled to crush another person or to be satisfied with their destruction. The pure in heart follows that 1 Corinthians ethic of love that hopes the best, that keeps no record of wrong. That's a kingdom value, which leads to the next one in a bigger context. It's proactive. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's just another way of saying they'll be members of this kingdom. Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, who are they? Uh, I want to speak to the negative on this one culturally. Um, Peacemakers are people who do not stir up strife. Peacemakers are people who, who, who don't go, hey, did you see what he did? Did you see what she said? Aren't they horrible? Aren't they stupid for what they believe? Aren't we great for what we believe? Peacemakers don't divide. Peacemakers don't tribalize. 
Peacemakers are not self-righteous. They don't self-justify their right to hate other people or dismiss them as fools. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear that? You're living in the now. And let me tell you what happens in an upside-down world. world, The right-side-up people get persecuted. Wisdom to the upside-down world is foolishness. Righteousness and holiness and beauty to the upside-down world is evil. And they will be persecuted. And then I think that is when he turned to his disciples. Close in, maybe even where the rest of the crowd couldn't quite hear. And he said, and blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Beatitudes teach kingdom life, but they also teach our need for our Savior. And they say you can live in this kingdom right now in spirit and in truth, even in an upside-down world. It wasn't the law on top of that mountain with the smoke and fire. It was God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that was terrifying. And it wasn't the law on that hill either. It was the same God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just as terrifying just as radical, just as upside down unless you have an encounter with Jesus and let him love you and let him in. So that's what this series is about, encountering Jesus. Let him challenge your kingdom and turn it upside down. I normally do the action points at the beginning of the, of the message, but I wanted to do them at the end today because I think they make, a good, make for a good application about encountering Jesus in a busy, upside-down world that has no priority for this kind of thing. So I want to encourage you to look at your play sheet, explore, discover, grow. If you have a lot of questions, if you think this is a bunch of rubbish, if you're one of those people that thinks that these are ridiculous standards put forth in this Sermon on the Mount and you don't get it, Alpha is for you. It's the place you get to come and ask your questions and have your conversations and express yourself without judgment. We have one starting on September 12th. That's a Thursday night. Um, we also have a new one starting for moms on, December, on September 10th. Um, all of that information is in, your, is in your action sheet. And I also wanted to tell you about that deeper dive. You know, um, you don't dig into, deep into these texts Uh, by a little bit on Sundays, as I said, or even getting into your personal worship, you really need to become a student of Scripture. And um, coming up, starting in September, uh, we're starting a new thing led by one of our elders and uh, one of our deacons, uh, Ted Moses and Fred McMurtry. It's called Bible Study Fellowship, and maybe you've heard of it. It's a men's study of the book of Acts, but it's intensive. I mean, think like an athlete for this, and it's not just about studying the book of Acts. It's about learning how to deep dive and study for Scripture. And some of you ask for that all the time. So go see one of these guys back there and, and see about signing up for that. So I'll leave you with this thought as, as my wife, Didi comes up. She's going to lead us in our time of reflection. Um, Sarah, if you could put that painting up again. This is from uh, a member of our church, and throughout the series, if you saw during the offertory, we're going to be featuring a piece of art uh, a local, uh, original piece of art uh, from people who have interpreted uh, their perspective on our teaching. And this was this week's piece. And I'll tell you what I love about it. He says that 
The only way to aspire to this kingdom is to encounter Jesus and to abide in him and to rest in him. And I love that he turned his back to Jesus in peace with Jesus, but looking out toward the world, the kingdom that he's designed to build. So you're going to be seeing these pieces of art appear and they'll be back there at the end of the series. We'll bring them all together and we're going to have a big event to come together and appreciate that art and hear from some of the artists. Let Jesus in and have an encounter with him.